Okay, let's turn to Romans 11, Romans 4, Romans 5, and Hebrews 11. Pastor Messick, thank you for taking the ship. And I have a request for thanking you all for your prayers, at least from our acquaintances and families' angle, from our from the Andrews who lived right a couple of miles from the beach in Anna Maria Island near Anna Maria Island. They their damage amounted to a palm frond on the lawn, and. Uh, God's providence intervened for them in many ways. I guess when they're up here, they'll tell some of you about it. And we just heard about Debbie down in Florida. Mike, Debbie, here, Debbie. And she's fine. And we just heard also my sister Sandy texted me and said she had a broom on her porch and it didn't even fall over. So God's, it just shows God's grace. And, of course, other areas were profoundly affected, so we want to keep them in prayer. But your, your prayers are very deeply appreciated. And my family holed up at my brother-in-law's and sister's house, and he sustained a tear in a pool screen. So, I mean, it, it just shows God's grace and faithfulness and kindness, but it also shows that we need to have compassion for others that we're not as fortunate and to know with humility that we're not always beyond trial and affliction and other things in this life. We don't get out of here without a few scars. Okay, Romans 11 to start with, and I may get to those other places. I have to tell you that I'm for the first time, quite comfortable with going to Romans to do a study in Romans, even having a possible title. And I don't think it'll be Better Call Paul in continuation. I think we're going to wrap that pretty soon. And then there will be Romans the Epistle, which I'll call that series, Romans the Epistle, just so that you don't get it confused with Romans the people or Romans the soldiers or, you know, other people, all people named Roman. So Romans, the epistle, and I have a a way of approaching it that I think is going to be beneficial to our congregation. And I think it's also going to break loose from the pack of runners and exegetes in the past a little bit by the grace of God. I have a certain approach to it that I think will pass the test and pass the test of time and the test of exegesis. So be in prayer for that, as I always ask for prayer for upcoming series. It will be Romans, the epistle. Tonight, anticipating Christ. This is the 101st, not airborne, but the 101st anticipating Christ. 101st Better Call Paul installment or lesson, whatever you want to call it. We're going to go to Romans 11 and take a couple of moments for silent prep. Father, we thank you for your 
unrelenting faithfulness by which you've called us into participation with your son, Jesus Christ. What a privilege. We also thank you for your faithfulness by which we never are called to endure beyond that which we are able by your grace to withstand and to undergo and that you always provide a way of escape because of your grace and your kindness. We thank you for your providence, for your ongoing care, for your love. And we ask now that you'll open the eyes of our heart wider than they've been opened before to see what marvelous things in your word. The sum total of which is your son. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Just to pick up on our strand, my plan is to go through Romans 11, then do a small segment on the pastoral epistles, which will be a strange lead-in to Romans. So we, after I finish Romans 11, then there will be a short increment on the pastorals. That's at least that's the plan now. God always can steer the ship a different way if he wants to, of course. And then after a short stint in the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, we will segue into Romans as an epistle, the totality of it. And I want prayer for that because I want to make known the mystery of Christ as I ought to and to articulate it boldly. There's a lot of areas that require a certain exegetical daring But the men in the past that have made any progress on the interpretation of Romans have taken some fairly daring steps, and I think you have to to make the the epistle clear. I'd I'd ask for prayer for that, for clarity in that regard, for courage and boldness, and also that I might make the exegesis not too long. It can be really taxing on a congregation if you take 15 years to go through 16 chapters of Romans. On the other hand, not to be so brief that we don't capture the real essence and meaning of the gospel of Christ according to Paul. So those are three requests that I put before you tonight. And have confidence in God through Christ about your prayers. So... Romans 11, 11, starting there. So I, Paul, say they have not, meaning the hardened part of Israel, the majority of Israel at the time, they have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? Of course not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the pagans to provoke Israel to jealousy or to be a fulcrum or a pivot to turn Israel toward the gospel. Remember the principle. Paul expects some of his fellow Jewish Israelites to be saved during the course of this present evil age, which is a miracle in itself. He expects all of them to be saved at the end of this present evil age, in the moment called the parousia, when Yahweh appears and every eye sees the flesh of Yahweh pierced in seeing Jesus Christ, and all together, all humanity, experiences the salvation of God. So he says, and here's where we want to really make an analogy to Romans 5, which is why I asked you to also be ready there. But if their misstep, and that's the word paraptoma, 
A R A P T O M A. Paraptoma. It's a misstep. It goes along with tripping. If they are they tripping in order to fall down permanently? Of course not. God plans not to disannul their election, but to disannul their present unbelief in the future, the eschatological future. Paraptoma then means a misstep. This goes all the way back to Romans 9.32 in which Paul's dealing with the foot race and he pictures Israel as a runner. Israel, the hardened part, trips, but it's not to fall down and then become on the permanent DL, disabled list, or to be ruled out of the election altogether. If their misstep, verse 12, is bringing riches to the world, those are the riches that are incalculable riches of Christ, as Ephesians 3.8 puts it. Remember, Ephesians was most probably written before Romans, not after, even though it's in the canon of Scripture, in its order, after Romans, it is actually chronologically written before. In fact, Ephesians is, one, in one sense, the most important epistle of Paul because it's the most pristine account of his gospel and of the mystery which he introduces very early in Ephesians 1.10, the mystery of God's intention to recapitulate everything in his son. If we understand that, then we have the greatest interpretive tool, as we're going to see, for Romans. And so when he speaks of riches for the Gentiles or riches for the world, he's talking about the exceeding riches of Christ, which he also talks about in connection with the mystery that he plans to make known to all men in Ephesians 3, 9, etc., to angels in verse 10, etc. So, he says, if their misstep is bringing riches to the world, and that continues even now in our time, and their defeat, I believe there in that word defeat, he sees or foresees A.D. 70 and the defeat of Israel, in the Jewish wars by the Roman legions, their defeat, which indicates God's rejection of them temporarily because of their rejection of Messiah, as we have seen. But if their misstep is bringing riches to the world and their defeat riches for the Gentiles, that's the pagan world, how much more will their fullness bring them? Pleroma. Paul anticipates not only a Pleroma of pagans, a pagan Pleroma, but an Israeli Play Roma. All Israel will be saved, according to Romans eleven twenty six, as all the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles, come in to populate the people of God. Also, Romans eleven twenty five, and that's where we're aiming. That's where true north, north. That's where the arrow is pointing. That's where we're climbing. We're not going to stop on any precipice, as many exegetes have done. You stop on a precipice. You build a doctrine based on a partial truth. And you don't really exegete Romans correctly. Not until you get to Romans 11.32 where it says God's intent is to show mercy to all. And that's why he imprisons all in disobedience. So, and again, I'm just running the iron over the garment here a little bit more to get a couple more wrinkles out. And then I'm going to hit the ground on something else and start running with it. If their misstep is bringing riches to the world, and of course it is, the fulfilled condition, and their defeat riches for the Gentiles, and it is, how much more will their fullness bring? That is, bring to the world the fullness of Israel, the full salvific blessing of Israel. 
13 begins, I think, a new paragraph, but now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And we'll show you that what that means is I want you to curb your enthusiasm. Gentiles are enthusiastic about the fact that they think they have replaced Israel, replaced hardened Israel, that they are there, they are the elect because branches have been broken off from the olive tree. Their enthusiasm then needs to be curbed because it's one based on elitist arrogance. And Paul's going to hammer that home starting in verse 16, which we may take up as early as tomorrow night. But now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in view of the fact that I am the apostle to the Gentiles. This is what he makes clear from all the way back in Romans 1.5. I am magnifying, or he could say expanding the effect of my ministry. The word is doxazo, generally meaning to glorify. But here it means to expand the effect of my ministry. That is beyond the Gentiles to the Jews also to have it have an effect on the Jews also. If by doing so, in verse 14, I may provoke my flesh. Paul never renounces his Jewishness. He never renounces his being an Israelite. He, in fact, calls the fellow Israelites here, his brothers, his countrymen by physical descent, his own flesh. And he never thinks otherwise about them. That I may provoke my flesh to jealousy. And save some of them. He's revealing that his flesh are Israel after the flesh and that they would be prone to jealousy because they're still in the Adamic ontology. And yet he wants to turn them by jealousy about the gospel coming to the Gentiles and they're apparently being included as the Israel of God, the eschatological Israel of God, the shock of seeing a pagan people brought in to the privileges that they think they deserve over hundreds of years of piety, according to the Torah, is, causes them a kind of jealousy. They want to know what's going on. Some of them will be saved as a result of that curiosity, as we have learned before. So he says, and save some of them. Paul expects some of his flesh, his kinsmen, which he has grief about in Romans 9, 1 and following, he expects some of them to be saved in the present evil age. He expects all of them to be saved at the end of the age. Please get that principle down in your thinking. Verse 15, for you see, the explanatory gar is used here, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, and we worked that out a couple of Sundays ago, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Israel's rejection. Now, I'm going to just take off on a couple things here. Israel's rejection is God's rejection of them primarily here. Though, as we have seen, this rejection is connected with hardened Israel's rejection of their Messiah. But it must be understood that the hardening of Israel is not a human action. It's a divine action. God gave them a spirit of stupor. God made it so they couldn't see, even though they squinted, they couldn't see the meaning of the parables when Jesus spoke in parables, as many in the church don't today see the meaning. They see an eternal hell in so many places where it's not intended. It's because they squint and think they see, but they don't see. 
They hear and they listen to the parables taught or spoken by Jesus, but they don't understand. God gave them that spirit of stupor with a salvific intent toward the Gentiles and with a further salvific intent toward the hardened Israel. This is God's glory. God thinks of these things, not man. So then, their rejection is connected with or linked with hardened Israel's rejection of their Messiah in whom God, on the cross, was reconciling the world to himself. God the Father did not forsake or abandon his son at Calvary. He was fully involved in the redemptive act and suffered, as did the Holy Spirit, who, if being grieved by our sin, as Ephesians 4.30 says, he must very much have been grieved when the Son became sin. There's a Trinitarian involvement in our redemption, a Trinitarian full involvement in the cross of Christ. But of course, only one member of the triune God became humanity and was actually nailed to the tree. That that is our Lord Jesus Christ. My intention in speaking about Paul or in speaking about Romans is to speak about a theology that's Trinitarian with a decidedly Christocentric center. And that's what it's all about, in my view. A Trinitarian theology about the triune God with a decidedly Christocentric center. This is actually going to propel us a little further than a lot of exegetes have gone. And I don't in any way fault them or in any way assume any better than they are because it's only by what they've done that we get where we are, exegetes of the 21st century. But I think, as part of the Hall of Witnesses who have gone home to be with the Lord, and some of whom are still here, they would expect us to go further and to go beyond where they have gone. And that's the way it is. I expect many pastors to go further than I've gone, of course, in our congregation. That's just the way it should be. So this rejection of Israel and their future total acceptance in which they too will accept Messiah or receive him favorably as well as, and that's a divine action. If someone receives Christ, that's a divine action. If someone rejects Christ, that's a divine action. That's a divine action. And the divine action is going to culminate in the total acceptance by all of humankind of Messiah. The disannulling of disbelief and unbelief on the part of all humanity which comes at a vision of Christ, which provokes a faith that is not illegitimate because seeing you can believe as well as not seeing you can believe. There is a special reward for those who believe without seeing, as we know from John twenty twenty nine. So to prevent rambling, let me just say this. This is God's severity, as Paul said. Behold both the severity and the kindness of the Lord. This is God's severity, the rejection of Israel, which is ultimately in the service of his benevolence. There's a bigger circle, and it's called God's kindness. Within that circle, there is his severity, meaning his severity is in service of his benevolence. His wrath is in a smaller circle than the larger circle of his love. Therefore, his wrath is in service of his love. His justice is creative, justifying, rectifying, 
acquitting justice because the judge became the judged on Calvary's cross. It only makes sense at the cross. So many things that are enigmas and riddles to people today only make sense at the cross. Injustices, bizarre kinds of testings that people go through, the why is only answered in the why have you forsaken me in Jesus on the cross. Unanswered prayers are often God's great blessing toward us because in one sense, the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane was unanswered. If it's at all possible, take this cup from me. That wasn't wrong to pray, but it was an unanswered prayer. So if you have prayers that are unanswered, don't think God now disfavors you. He favors you all the more because you are identifying with his son at Gethsemane. And it may mean that you just are supposed to wait, or it may mean that you've asked amiss and the answer would destroy you. Or it may mean a whole bunch of other things, but don't be weary in praying. Don't be weary in well-doing. Do not faint, but continue to pray, as Jesus said in Luke 18. So, in Romans, we understand the severity of God is ultimately in service of his benevolence, just as his wrath is always in the service of his love, and as his justice is a rectifying function and a justifying function. A creative justice. In Romans eleven twelve to 15, and you can note these if you want, because I don't want to go really back to Romans 5 except to note certain things. In Romans eleven twelve to 15, there is an echo of Romans 5. So therefore, there's a parallel, a striking one in Romans 5. The misstep, and that's again, paraptoma, paraptoma accent there, the misstep, Paraptima of hardened Israel in Romans 11 verses 11 and 12 can be compared and contrasted with Adam's misstep. The same word is attributed to Adam. Adam's misstep. His transgression was a misstep. Israel's rejection of Christ was a misstep. In both cases, there's an anticipation of Christ to fix the problem, as it were. And this is where I want to go into what I learned a while ago about the law of similarity and dissimilarity. The law of similarity and dissimilarity. What are the similarities and what are the dissimilarities, otherwise known as comparing and contrasting? Between Romans 11, 11 and 12, the paraptoma of hardened Israel and Adam's misstep, which is found in Romans 5, 15, 16, 17, and 18. Critical passage. Romans 5, 15, 16, 17, and 18 speak of Adam's paraptoma, or paraptoma, if we're going to put the accent there. And so we have here a parallel passage under the law of similarity and dissimilarity. Let me illustrate it so you'll see it more clearly. Similarity. In Romans 5... The misstep of Adam, which brought condemnation and death to all humankind, did not bring about a permanent situation because of the one surpassing and superseding act 
of righteousness by the one man, Jesus Christ. Which was so that all humankind would receive life-giving rectification or a setting right that means the gift of life where death reigned. And that I just thought of. So I think the Holy Spirit, once you're, if you're studying your brains out, I like what Karl Barth said in his, he had six introductions to Romans because there were six reprints. And he, he said, he thanked his congregation because he was a pastor. And he thanked his congregation for their patience with him because he was, quote, a pastor who lived in his study. Close quote. And I thought about that and I said, well, that's kind of like what I've done. I've been a pastor that lived it's lived in his study and thanked the congregation for their patience. That, but I also think that maybe that's where we're supposed to be, living in our study. Because without the arduous labor of studying, there is no insight. There's no discovery. There's no, you don't just go up on a mountain somewhere and expect God to speak to you. It's studying the Word. It's studying the Scriptures. It's studying to show ourselves approved to God as a workman that needs not to be ashamed. And Karl Barth did a remarkable job on Romans. And that was back in 19, during World War I, 1918. Then he did another edition. The final edition, I think, came out in 22, 1922. But that's just a side thing. In Romans 5, then, this is a similarity. The misstep of Adam, which brought condemnation and death to all humankind, did not bring about a permanent situation of condemnation and death because of the one surpassing and superseding act of righteousness by the one man, Jesus Christ, so that all humankind would receive life-giving rectification. Therefore, the real definition for justification, according to Romans 4.5, the justification of the ungodly and Galatians 3.21, the giving of life, the real definition of justification is a setting right of people in death by giving them the gift of life, Messiah's own life. So it's not just a forensic or legal imputation of righteousness. It's a real setting right by being given a life, the life of Messiah himself, which sets right the problem of being lifeless or death in death. That's a problem. That's a definition that I think we should follow up on. So being given it tonight by the Holy Spirit, we'll let that be on hold for a while. So, similarly, the misstep of the majority of Israel did not bring about a permanent hardening of that part of Israel either. The misstep of Israel did not bring about a permanent hardening in Israel, the hardening of the heart. Because we know from Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six that God's going to take out the stony heart, put a new heart in. He's going to take out the old spirit and put a new spirit in. He's going to put his own spirit in them. And that's a promise in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven also. So I'll say that again. Similarity. In Romans 5, the misstep of Adam, which brought condemnation and death to all humankind, did not bring about a permanent situation because of the one surpassing and superseding act of righteousness by the one man, Jesus Christ, which was so that all humankind would receive life-giving rectification. Romans 5.18, 
and 1 Corinthians 15:22 by comparison in Christ all will be made alive therefore all will be justified rectified set right by a gift of life and finally the similar similarly the misstep of the majority of Israel did not bring about a permanent hardening of that part of Israel's the second similarity that was the first one the condemning misstep of the one man Adam remember paraptoma both Israel and Adam the condemning misstep of the one man Adam anticipated the rectifying step of the one man Jesus Christ the eschatological Adam, the final Adam, and the one who is called the coming one, whom we know as the one who has come, the coming one. So, just as the misstep of Israel anticipated her eschatological recovery due to God's act in Christ, likewise, Adam's act anticipated Christ in that both men were bearers of the destiny of the whole human race. So the very misstep of Adam was an anticipation of Christ, which is why in Genesis 3.15, God speaks to the serpent and said, the seed of the woman will come and crush your head. As you have crushed, you will crush his heel. Speaking of the nailing of the feet of Messiah to the cross in which the heels, of course, would be bruised. And however, the heels are bruised because in that same act, the head of the serpent was crushed by those bruised heels. Genesis 3.15. So even in Adam's transgression, there is an anticipation of Christ's obedient act whereby all are justified. That's the gospel. The gospel radiates through all the scriptures. There's an elegant continuity throughout the Bible. Adam prefigured, therefore, or we could say was a prototype of the one who was to come. That is Christ Jesus, Romans 5.14b. And the one who has come into the world is one of the themes that we studied in John. The coming one, as he's called in John 1, 9, John 4, 25 to 26, John 6, 14. Imagine the shock of the woman at the well when Jesus said, that coming one, it's me. It's the man who's speaking to you right now. I'm him. John 4, 25 and 26. He's the light that was always about to come into the world, and he came into the world. He's the light that lightens every man. The light that lights up every man, every person. John 1, 9. John eleven twenty seven. Martha said, I know that you are the coming one. I know that the coming one will come. And Jesus said, yes, that's me, basically. You can compare that with Matthew eleven three, Luke seven nineteen to 23, 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16. It's a faithful saying. Christ Jesus did come into the world to save sinners, of whom 
I'm a prototype, Paul says. First John 5.20 also. So in Adam's fall, which took down the human race, there was an anticipation of the one who would rise after death, literally, and take up with him in his rising the whole human race. The first Adam, by and in whom all human beings die and are dying, was a prototype of the last Adam, by and in whom all human beings will be made alive with rectifying life, the life that sets right the terrible condition they were in before. Again, Romans 5.18 compared with 1 Corinthians 15.22. So consider Jesus' word in John 14.19. See this in an entirely different light now. Because I live, you will live also. Because I live by resurrection, you will live also. Who's that you? Everybody. The whole human race. That's his word to the whole of the human race. Because I live, you will live also. John fourteen nineteen. Then he goes into the doctrine of comprising all things. In that day, you will know I am in you and you are in me. And I am in my father. So you are in my father. In that day, you will come to know that I'm comprising you. That I'm comprising all things. That the Father comprises me, and I comprise all things. Therefore, the Father will one day comprise all things. He will be all in all. Glorious truth uttered by the Lord Jesus Christ. So, that puts a new spin on John fourteen nineteen and 20. The comprising angle in verse 20, which may be compared also with Colossians 3.3, 3, your life right now is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears in glory, you will appear with him. All glorious. I think a hint there of Psalm 45. The king's daughter is all glorious within. King's daughter will one day be all glorious without as well as within. So, how about a dissimilarity? We said law of similarity and dissimilarity. How about a dissimilarity between Israel's misstep and Adam's misstep? Adam's misstep brought only temporary negative consequences to all of humankind. But the misstep of Israel brought negative temporary consequences only to the hardened part of Israel. It brought supremely beneficial consequences to the world, to the pagan world, to the world of the Gentiles, to our world. Similarity then to close with, in both the misstep of Israel and the misstep of Adam, there was the anticipation of Christ. Now we have... In our own day, I don't know about you, but I anticipate Christ. I know that he's come. I know what he's done. But I anticipate his coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, is my prayer. 
I want him to come. I want him to appear. I want him to, I want to see him as he is and be like him. Of course, I think maybe you do too. Unless you're doing stuff that you don't want him to come and see. I know I'm only kidding about that. That's where preachers like to preach. But the redemptive action of God in Christ is permanent in its results. The redemptive act of God in Christ, whereby he reconciled the world to himself, is permanent in its results. The anticipation of Christ also runs through Romans chapters 1 through 4. Here's where I started to get the road into teaching Romans. The road, the kind of like the open door where the Spirit seems to be saying, come on in. Romans chapter 1 through 4 includes Abraham's situation. And that's a real, t- that's the hardest obstacle I have hit in considering Romans. But I think I'm beginning to see clear through it. Abraham's situation. The whole point of, Ro- of Romans 4 is the anticipation of Christ, of course. Romans 4, which cites Genesis fifteen six. Now, I'm going to give you some preliminary words about Romans 4 that you will not have heard before. They are going to be unfamiliar they will be, you'll leave here with a little bit of obscurity. But I'm trying to follow the rule that good teaching starts from obscurity and goes to clarity. Even God does that. We see through a glass obscurely, but then clearly, face to face. That's a method of teaching. It's called discovery. So don't be alarmed if you don't grab everything about this. But in almost every commentary on Romans... Abraham's faith in some way anticipates Jesus Christ. And that's right. But often left out of the interpretation of the Abraham narrative in Romans 4 is that his faith anticipated Christ as the singular seed of Abraham who comprises all the stars all the innumerable descendants of Abraham. When he believed God and his faith was credited as an approved way of living. That's how it's going to be. That anticipates Romans 6 through 8. Abraham was already walking by faith in Romans 12. So he didn't get justified in 15. Abraham was already walking by faith. He went out from the Ur of the Chaldees, by faith. He was already living in faith. But he got to the place where his faith was approved by God as an approved way of living and as an anticipation of participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He's not, Paul's not writing Romans 4 to claim Abraham as his patriarch like the false teacher did in another way. He's doing something entirely different. That's all I'll say for right now, but let's continue. And this is going to also set us up for Romans in a a better way. I think it'll put us in a much better position to understand Romans. So often left out is that in that day, when God took Abraham outside the tent, he said, look at the stars and see if you can count them or give an account of them. And those stars and, the, and also the sands of the sea, which would be his seed, means two things. It means that it's Christ, it's the magnitude of Christ, his singular seed, 
but it also means that Christ is going to comprise all those stars and all the sands of the sea in a reconciliation of the heavens represented by the stars and the earth represented by the sands of the sea, that he will comprise all those things. Now, watch, this is the, where I ask for prayer for how to articulate things. So what is often not mentioned in commentaries is the identification of Christ as the singular seed of Abraham who comprises all the stars and all the innumerable descendants of Abraham. Abraham's forward faith was approved by God because Christ is always approved by God. This is my son in whom I am very well pleased. God is always very well pleased with his son. God's approval of his son is your salvation. God, And therefore, you are accepted or graced out in the beloved. God isn't just approving of you. He approves of his son, and therefore he approves of you in his son. God always approves of his son. So his approval of his son, Jesus Christ, is your salvation. I'm saved not because God approves of me or approves of any of my actions in the past or even in the present, because it's not by righteous deeds that we have done before or are doing now that we're saved, but according to his mercy, he saves us. So I'm saved because God approves of his son. That's why I'm secure in my salvation. You want to talk about eternal security. I have eternal security because of God's approval on his son for me. And I believe that for all, too. Ultimately, for all. So, Abraham's forward faith was approved by God because Christ is always approved by God. Matthew 3, 17, 17, 5. Ephesians 1, 6. Colossians 1, 13. And the faith that believes that God is, now we're going to Hebrews 11, that God is, that he exists. The faith that believes that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him always pleases God. But we could argue that that faith also is an act of God. But faith, not works-piety or religious pious works. Faith, not works-piety, is a divinely approved life and lifestyle. God approves faith as a life and a lifestyle because that faith ultimately is our participation in the fidelity of his son. We're going to see how in Romans 14, Paul deals with people who interpret that being a libertine kind of liberty, which has no regard at all for the scrupulous brother, the weak brother. And we're going to see how others are still functional in that over-scrupulousness of works. But we're also going to see a group that Paul inhabits of what is called the strong in faith. Not strong like Boston strong. Strong in Christ because of weakness. That Paul was one of the strong that didn't despise the weak. In fact, loved the weak. And so there's that group. And Paul's trying to kind of call everybody into that group in Romans 14 and 15, 1 through 13. 
And we're going to see that work out. So faith, not works piety, is a divinely approved life and lifestyle. This is more like what Paul is saying when God approves or credits Abraham's faithfulness as righteousness. God is saying, that's the style, the life, that's the life and the lifestyle I want. And he didn't say that until deep into Abraham's life because Abraham had become more matured through failures. Romans 4 doesn't record any of his failures, which is weird, unless we understand a genre of writing, which is a propagandist genre, called hagiography. That's coming up. Hagiography. This is an interpretive tool. Hagiography is not the biography of a hag. Hagiography comes from hagios in the Greek, which means holy. Hagiography, you can even look it up. It's probably in the dictionary. It's on Google or whatever else those goofy things are. Hagiography, H-A-G-I-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y, is a biography that's sanitized. It sanitizes the heroic biography of any faults or any disbelief in the case of Abraham. And in fact... Paul uses this. This is what the rabbis used, hagiography. It's also found in certain places, like some, I remember when I was a kid, we were told uh, by our Catholic priest to read the life of the saints. The life of the saints was always a hagiography. It was always sanitized biography. Someone was so pure and someone was so, and was so good and we were supposed to emulate the life of the saints. The life of the saints were almost always hagiographical. They were sanitized biographies. They did not record the faults or the sinfulness or the sinful performances of people. The Bible does. Abraham went into Hagar and had sex with Hagar because he didn't believe that. He said, we're getting too old here. And and Sarah said, "We're, we're way too old to produce a son. So here, have sex with my Egyptian servant girl. And Abraham said, okay. That's not recorded in Romans 4. It isn't recorded in Romans 4 that he was with when he went to Abimelech, and Abimelech was kind of a dictator, and so he lied to Abimelech and said, Sarah's just my sister, because he didn't want Abimelech to kill him and take her for his harem. So he kind of just let Sarah go into the harem so that he could live in Genesis 20. God, that's not recorded in Romans 4. Romans 4 says Abraham never staggered in unbelief. Well, that, wait a minute. We're dealing with hagiography now. But Paul isn't trying to say Abraham was perfect in his faith. He was using hagiography, which was a device used by the false teacher to claim Abraham for himself and for his nomistic and legalistic gospel. Paul displays an unrelenting faith and fidelity as an anticipation of Jesus Christ's fidelity. And as the suggestion that when Abraham was finally approved by God, he was participating in Messiah's fidelity by that time. And that's what I'm trying to get at. That's why hagiography, the whole idea of that genre, is the interpretive tool for Romans 4. It isn't saying, like the justification by faith people say, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, therefore justification by our faith is the proof here. We claim Abraham for us. You can't do that. That's not what Romans 4 was written for. That's a superficial reading. That's the reading of not even the pack. 
That's the reading of the pack of horses behind the pack of horses that are going for the finish line. And so it's a thicker reading that we're dealing with. And so we could say for our own personal application of our own lives that these three abide, they remain, faith, hope, and love. These are the essential components of a life and a lifestyle that God approves. In fact, that God enacts, that God wills and does in us. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And we walk by faith and not by sight. It's a walk. It's a progressive, continual life and lifestyle. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Our lives are lived, therefore, by faith that works by love. A faith that's generated by and enacted by God's unrestricted love and the power of his love. It's a faith that works by love. Not circumcision or uncircumcision avails nothing, Paul says. It's not a matter of works-oriented piety or ritual piety. It's a faith that works by love in Galatians 5.6. Then he said to the Galatians, you were running well in 5.7, going back to the running or the race analogy. You were running well. In other words, in a life of faith that works by love. Who threw an obstacle on the course and made you trip up and stop obeying the truth of the gospel? By circumcision, by observance of certain holy days and Sabbaths, and by adherence to the law. So, our lives are to be lived by a faith that works by love. That's approved by God. It is faith that is generated by God's love. That's what that means. And keeps being effective in that love. It is not circumcision and the human works-oriented piety that goes with it. It's a faith that works by love along with a hope that anticipates the final deliverance that only God can effect, which is the hope of righteousness, the hope of final deliverance. For we, Paul said, we, through the Spirit, not the flesh, wait for the hope of righteousness, the realization of the final deliverance in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 5, 5, and 6. That's why we're still anticipating Christ. The one who is coming has come, but we anticipate the final deliverance that he will bring. We wait for a Savior from heaven who shall change these bodies of humiliation into bodies like his own body of glory. That hasn't happened yet. You may think you're in a body of glory, but things will happen to you to prove otherwise. And unless, if you don't acknowledge that you're not in a body of glory, those things will be traumatic. Hey, this isn't supposed to happen. You know, if you think you're in a glorified body already, curb your enthusiasm. Paul does a lot of that in Romans. Hey, curb your enthusiasm. There's a certain, uh, every believer is a charismatic because every believer has a charisma, a gift. But there is a certain element of the charismatic movement in Corinth 
that had an undue enthusiasm. And Paul said, curb your enthusiasm. I know, I'm referring to a recent TV comedy. But as the elders of Hebrews 11 received a good report, and here's how I'm going to just make this final suggestion, not really a connection, but a suggestion. As the elders of the presbyteroi, men and women alike, of Hebrews 11, there's a wonderful parallel between Romans 4 and Hebrews 11. Romans 4, as it goes into 5, where the attention is moved away from Abraham to Christ, like Hebrews 11 pays attention to many elders, including Abraham at its center, but then says, now let's look away from all these unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who endured the cross and is now exalted and enthroned at the right hand of the Father, the Christ event. So as the elders of Hebrews 11 received a good report, according to Hebrews 11.2, and were approved by faith which was their conviction of the existence of unseen things and their assurance of things or persons yet to come. So Abraham received God's approval before he received the seal of that approval called circumcision. And that's what Paul makes the point about in Romans 4, 9, and 10. Abraham's faith as described in Romans 4, was steady. It was even supernaturally strong faith. It never wavered. He never wavered, it says. Paul's being a little tongue-in-cheek there. He's trying to take the and adopt the hagiography genre of the teacher to try to point to Christ. See, the teacher put Christ on the sidelines. Paul's putting Christ in the heart and center. Like any gospel preacher will do. Abraham's faith and steady, even supernatural fidelity in Romans 4 17 to 21, especially, anticipated the faithfulness of Jesus to God. Remember, it says Abraham believed God. Jesus is, his fidelity was toward God, his obedience was toward God. It's that shared obedience that is our participation in the fidelity of Jesus Christ, which we only have in a very small incremental kind of a way, especially early on in our Christian faith. And then it gets better and better. It gets more and more like we rest and let God act more and more. So in closing then, note, simply note, and I think I'll have to take this up again tomorrow night, simply note, that Abraham's faith, which Paul portrays here by hagiography as perfect, unwavering, never makes a, an unbelief detour. That's not saying that that's really the way it was with Abraham. The Bible isn't hagiographical. It shows the failures, the faults, the sins, and sometimes the very grievous sins like David murdering Uriah, committing adultery with Bathsheba. It does not spare those kind of punches. It's not a hagiography. So when you see Paul using hagiography, you're saying, what's he up to here? He's up to saying that this 
hagiography of a stainless, unrelenting faith is an anticipation of Christ's own fidelity, by which we are rectified, by which we are justified. Because there's only one mediator between God and all of mankind, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. He mediates that which is already an unconditional and universal promise and covenant to all mankind. So there's a double assurance there. God's unconditional promise and Christ's mediatorial function, guaranteeing salvation for all human beings. That's the point. See, if I can make this point and have a little bit of edge on this point and make this point be something that actually penetrates your hearts as a pastor. If I can make this point in 110 messages or so in Better Call Paul, then we're ready for Romans. Then you're prepped and ready for Romans. Because that, this vision of a universally saving Christ is already in your mind. So nothing in the exegesis that many exegetes and commentators would say is a reason for you to be insecure or fearful or fretful of the loss of salvation or of no salvation for a certain segment of humanity, you'll know that the lie, that's the lie, and you'll be able to see, well, how does this fit into God's ultimate purpose? That takes what, I, what Lonergan called intentionality analysis. It's almost impossible to do an analysis of Paul's intentionality. And so even Barth, who is one of the greatest scholars of all time, spent more time in his study than almost any other human being, Karl Barth, even when he did Romans, he said, you can't even begin to understand the intentionality of the man, Paul, and the in- because he had the mind of Christ. But we have to strive to lay hold of it. Nobody has ever done, nor will anyone ever do, and this is for pastors, future pastors and present pastors to know this, no one will ever do a definitive study of Romans where you get the whole thing together and you say, I've got the definitive study, throw away all your books, throw away everything else, I got the definitive study. But all of us can, as exegetes and commentators of the word and communicators of the word, present a proper commentary of Romans that truly edifies and elevates the people of God and reveals the Christocentric Trinitarian plan of God for our generation. It's a wonderful thing. The humility is I won't do a definitive study on Romans, the one that everybody points to in the future. But I will do one that will edify, build up, and strengthen this congregation. And maybe even beyond this congregation. Who knows? That's up to God. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity that you've placed before us. Thank you for Better Call Paul, a study that you have led us into. Thank you for the next one we begin to see. We're beginning to see through the paths that we have been pioneering by your grace. We're beginning to see what might be next, what very well could be next. Romans, the epistle, a handling of that wonderful document, which is considered by many, perhaps properly, 
to be the greatest document of all time. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege of being together with other believers who have been called into fellowship with your dear son. We can't emphasize enough the depth and the height and the width and the breadth of the privilege that you have called us into participation with your own son. 